Section 4. Seeking Help Chapter 12. Thriving, Not Just Surviving Trigger Warnings, Suicidal Ideation, Depression As I stated at the start of this book, I'm not a psychologist, nor am I trained in mental health support. To this end, I cannot provide medical guidance in this chapter. Instead, what follows is a starting point on how you might seek help for mental illness, as well as a list of resources I wish I had known about, that have helped myself and others throughout their own mental health journeys. I encourage you to explore other resources out there to figure out what might work best for you. Simply put, this is just a starting point on your journey to mental health management. Personally, I much prefer mental health management to recovery, as in my own experience, I have learned that my mental illnesses are chronic. Thus, I likely will never recover from them, but to function well, I certainly have had to learn to manage them. To understand how to best look after your mental health during a PhD programme, I see many parallels between seeking help and putting together a research proposal. For both, there are three main elements. Identifying the research problem set, sharing the hypothesis with others, and seeking external assistance from others to achieve your research goal. Of course, it is incredibly easy to outline the research proposal process in these simple steps, but much, much harder to put it into practice. The same is true for seeking mental health support, but it absolutely can be done. Let's explore how. Identifying the problem set. Perhaps the biggest challenge those of us with mental illness can face is acknowledging that we need help for our mental health in the first place. A bigger challenge still, we have to accept that we deserve help. This can be particularly difficult when our self-worth is at its lowest and we are struggling to see ourselves the way that those that love us see us. Trust me, I know this feeling all too well. And yet, everyone is worthy of help. We do not earn our right to live or right to thrive. It is inherent. You deserve help just as much as anyone else. Now, even though I have said this, you may not feel ready to reach out for help because speaking it out loud means accepting that you are struggling. You also may be afraid of what others might think of you. These are all normal feelings compounded by the societal stigma around mental illness. I am here to tell you that help is out there for when you are ready, whether it is today, tomorrow or in three months' time. There are people, whether they are medical professionals or friends and family, that care about your well-being. We can also be incredibly good at minimising our concerns, looking at others around us and thinking they have it worse, and concluding that we don't actually need help ourselves. This is a false dichotomy. It is not one or the other. Everyone deserves help, and whilst there may be a huge range in mental health experiences from person to person, suffering is not a competition. We can also have a tendency to think that we must have been experiencing mental illness for a prolonged period before seeking help. In reality, for a diagnosis, a change in mood can have been happening for as little as two weeks, and does not have to be constant, simply more days struggling than not. Further, the onset of mental illness can be described as a change from or marked exaggeration of prior and normal state of functioning. Which means that however you are feeling, if it is different from your normal, it may be time to seek help. Further, something I wish I had learned much earlier 
is that functioning does not mean fine. As intelligent individuals, to the outside world we may seem well put together, and that we are managing just fine. But if we are like a swan on water, looking elegant on the surface, but underneath paddling hard, struggling to stay afloat, we absolutely need to seek help. There is only so long that that facade will stand before it comes crumbling down. The next steps in the process of managing your mental health is reaching out for support from those around you. If other people do not know you are struggling, it is impossible for them to provide help and appropriate accommodations. Conversation starters. It can sometimes be difficult to know where to start when talking to someone about your mental health and asking for help. So here are some conversation starters to help you articulate how you might be feeling, as detailed in Boynton 2020. I have been feeling low for the last few weeks and I... I am struggling with my mental health. I need help with. I feel anxious about. I'm not sure quite how to describe how I'm feeling, but... I'm worried that you think I am disengaged, but I have been really finding managing my mental health hard. I need to take a break. I feel like I am burned out and I am not okay right now. Please can we go for a coffee as I need to speak with you about... If you are finding speaking to someone in person daunting, it is worth remembering that there are a range of different ways to communicate, from email to through text or social media. If you are struggling and don't know who to turn to, social media provides a good conduit to get support and guidance and can provide anonymity if you do not feel like sharing with people you know to start with. Finding a support network. Navigating your PhD alone can be a lonely journey. Finding people to share the experience with can make all the difference. There are a range of people based on your university campus and beyond that are here to help. Here are just a few. University support. University campuses have a range of mental health support available for PhD students. This typically includes student support services, disability support, counselling services and a chaplaincy. These resources are there for you to access. Most universities also have mental health support lines you can call as a listening service. Your cohort. There is incredible power in connecting with other members of your cohort, as many of you will be experiencing similar issues. And if we think back to the statistics at the start of the book, approximately one in two PhD students will experience some form of mood disorder during their PhD. This means there is a high probability of finding some colleagues that you can relate to, and by connecting, you can support each other. Tip, creating study groups or organising social events may be a way to connect. Connecting with others. University clubs and societies provide a way to connect with others on your campus. If you are an international student, there may be specific societies to find people from your home country to connect with. This can help with culture shock and navigating a new country. Ombudsman. Your campus may have an ombudsman who is an independent person that can help you navigate a complaints procedure if you have been unfairly treated by your university. Union. Most PhD students are classed as staff, and this means that you are entitled to join a union. Your union representative can help you know your rights if you find yourself in a tricky situation. It's not always known that as a PhD student you may be able to join at a reduced rate 
or in some cases, membership is free. Disability Office As a PhD student, there are likely a range of different accommodations available to you to help you with your mental health, as well as managing other disabilities. By understanding what is available to you, this may help to alleviate significant strain. Your student disability office or similar on campus should be able to point you in the direction of useful resources. Online communities. It may not be news for you. I am an avid fan of social media, particularly Twitter. Sometimes it can be difficult to find people that understand our mental illnesses at our own institutions, but by connecting with the wider research community, we can make connections with people that can truly appreciate what we are going through. There are a range of communities online, as well as hashtags, some useful ones listed below, accurate as of summer 2022, where you can get involved in the conversation or simply observe learnings from the community. Hashtag NEIS void, standing for no end in sight. This is a space for those with chronic illness to discuss navigating challenges as well as successes. Hashtag black in the ivory, discussions of racism within the academy. Hashtag academic mental health, general discussions on mental health issues and stories from people within academia at all career stages. Hashtag PhD chat. General discussions on PhD life, covering the highs and the lows. Hashtag academic chatter, hashtag academic Twitter. Discussions from academics at all career stages in the academy exploring daily life, successes and struggles. Hashtag actually autistic. Accounts from the autistic community. Hashtag ADHD. Discussions about navigating life with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Hashtag dis in higher ed. A community discussing navigating higher education with disability. Hashtag me too. A space for discussions around sexual harassment. Speaking about your mental health with your PhD supervisor. It can feel like a daunting task to discuss your mental health with your PhD supervisor, and yet the majority of PhD supervisors want to see their PhD students succeed. Here is the thing, your PhD supervisor cannot help if they do not know there is an issue. If you are struggling, your supervisor may have noticed a change in your behaviour and may bring it up themselves. If you do not know how to broach the topic, consider sending an email first outlining what you wish to discuss. Consider using the conversation starters as a way to start dialogue around your mental health with your PhD supervisor. In some instances, your PhD supervisor might not know what support is out there for you, even though they should. It is well within your right to ask them to find out more information for you. I also want to mention that it is absolutely okay to not disclose to your PhD supervisor too if you do not feel safe to do so. Lack of understanding. When you open up to someone about how you are feeling and do not get the response you hoped for, it can be hurtful. In some cases, those we care about may carry stigma around mental health concerns themselves or be in denial because they did not realise you were struggling. We may even hear unhelpful phrases like, oh, well, we are all depressed right now or pull yourself together. Sometimes even those around us who truly care and want to help and provide support can get it wrong as they do not understand what you are going through, as they have never experienced mental illness themselves. 
Although disheartening, I suggest speaking to someone else about your mental health concerns, as there will be people that do understand around you, be it a colleague or a medical professional. In short, please do not let one bad interaction put you off seeking help. Seeking external assistance to achieve your goal. Sometimes, just like we often have to do to improve research outcomes, you may have to seek external help for your mental health. In this case, instead of collaborator, we look to medical professionals for guidance. There is no shame in needing support to get well again. Most PhD programmes in high-income countries have some sort of medical care built in as standard for being on a PhD programme. This may be access to medical care as well as access to short-term therapy. In low-middle-income countries, there may be no medical financial support. If this is the case, know this is a huge failing at the institutional level. Affordable medical support and access is a basic human right. It is important to remember that mental health stigma and bias can be present within the medical community too. If you think there is something wrong with how you're feeling, there is no one who is more of an expert in that than you. It is more than reasonable to seek out a second or even third opinion from a medical professional. For most interactions though, medical professionals are there to help you and want you to feel well again. Ringing your local doctor or general practitioner and booking an appointment to discuss how you're feeling is the first step in seeking this help. Tip. If you're worrying about what you're going to say, write the main points you want to communicate down before you ring your doctor. There is also much stigma associated with seeking medical help, as well as common misnomers. I want to challenge a few of these here. Myth 1. Medication is for the weak. Just like if you are experiencing hypertension or diabetes, medication is often needed to manage mental illness. This is not a weakness, it is an illness. Myth 2. Only a formal diagnosis matters. Whilst a formal diagnosis may give you access to medications and accommodations to help, self-diagnosis is absolutely valid. In order to seek a formal diagnosis, first we have to suspect that we might have a condition in the first place. Further, formal diagnosis can be expensive and thus not a tangible option for some. Myth 3. Therapy is a last resort. Representation of therapy in pop culture often seems to indicate that it is a last resort for mental health management. In reality, it is beneficial not just at crisis point, but throughout our lives to help us understand the world around us and why we feel the way we do. Myth 4. Medication will change your personality. It is only by trying medication that you can really see the effect it may have, but there is a long-standing myth that taking medication will change you into an entirely different person and mean that you can no longer be you. This is quite simply not the case. Myth 5. The side effects are awful. Mental health medication has advanced significantly and with any medication, your progress will be monitored carefully by your medical professional. If you experience any side effects that you are unhappy with, this can all be fed back to your medical advisor and alternatives can be found. In some cases, side effects can cause issues, but medication for mental illness is used regularly, to great effect, by people all around the world. There are many alternatives to investigate if the first medication you try doesn't work well for you. If you are at crisis point. Being at crisis point means feeling like you are at breaking point 
and need assistance urgently. You may be suicidal, including experiencing suicidal ideation, self-harming, feeling anxious, experiencing panic attacks or PTSD flashbacks, feeling high, experiencing hypomania, feeling paranoid, hearing voices, experiencing psychosis. In this instance, urgent care is needed. There are a range of options available to you, from speaking to friends and family, calling or texting your local country mental health charity helplines, as well as going directly to your local hospital for help. If you are worried about reaching crisis point, it may be valuable to put together your own safety plan available to download online from Charity Papyrus, among others, where preemptively you write down answers to questions including why you want to live, where to get help, and how to make the environment you are in safer for yourself when experiencing suicidal thoughts. The Elephant in the Room I now want to take a moment to talk about the elephant in the room, quitting your PhD. Nothing, and I mean absolutely nothing, is worth your peace of mind, certainly not a doctorate. So whilst many of you will push through, perseverance has a limit. If you find yourself in a toxic environment where your mental health is being negatively impacted, so much so that you have given up hope, you can and must leave your PhD programme. There is no shame in this. You deserve better than that. It is more than okay to walk away from a situation that is not built for you to succeed. Sometimes quitting a PhD programme is the biggest act of self-care we can do. We can also delay leaving due to the fear of what friends and family might think. Yet those who love you will understand if you explain your situation to them. You may also fear your next steps and how best to explain to a future employer or your next PhD supervisor about your decision to leave. But know that you are highly employable and the skills you have learned during your PhD stint, however short, bring huge value. There is also often the option to gain a master's degree instead of a PhD if you are part way through, which again is highly valued. There is often much negativity around the word quit, but I prefer to think about quitting using the Middle English etymology route, which means to be set free. It is okay to leave if you need to. Leading the change. Not everyone is in a position to talk openly about mental health, particularly in a public setting. This is more than okay. You owe your mental health journey to no one. There may be some of you though that look at the current support available at your university for PhD students and note that it is lacking. This might inspire you to drive for change within your own department. At the end of each chapter, there have been some advocating for better suggestions for you to utilise to drive for change in your institutions if you so wish. Expanding on how we implement these changes needs much more work as a research community and it is a great place to start discussions. From my own experience of advocating for change when it comes to academic mental health, I wanted to share some of my learnings with you. Lead with data. To make change, a convincing argument is needed. This involves collecting evidence of mental health concerns in regards to PhD students. Thankfully, this book and many other resources are out there to help. If your department wants more localised data, and there isn't any, a survey is a good place to start. Caution must be practised, though. A survey, if well-meant but poorly designed, may not collect useful information. Don't make it us versus them. It's easy to raise a pitchfork and tell senior management that they need to do better, but this is very unlikely to get results. 
It is important to remember that this lack of mental health provision is systemic, not personal, and that only by students and staff working together can real change be brought about. Find allies. Creating change is much easier if the burden is shared. Find allies around you that are also invested in improving mental health support at your university. This is especially important if you struggle with your own mental health from time to time, so that you can step back when you need space and time to look after yourself. Expect some resistance. When proposing changes, it is often the case we might hear, well, this is how it's always been done, or we don't have budget for that. This can make making improvements an uphill struggle. Tip. Starting small can still propagate change, like hosting a student discussion to talk about mental health support that is available. Do not be disheartened. Change takes time, and in academia, change can be glacial. This doesn't mean that advocacy work isn't helping others. It's often the case that you might not get positive feedback for the work you are doing, as it takes a lot of energy for individuals to come forward. The most important thing is you. Sometimes, advocacy work can take its toll. It is okay to step back from it for a while and come back to it when you are able. There should be no guilt attached to prioritising you and your well-being. Not just surviving. My honest hope is that one day there will be no need for this book, or at the very least the systemic issues section will be redundant. There should be no need for a PhD survival guide in the first place. It should not be difficult to navigate higher education. Everyone has a right to further education, and everyone intrinsically brings value. Throughout this book, I've explored the PhD experience. In the first section, we focused on what you can do as an individual to help bolster your resilience and work towards a more informed, positive mindset when it comes to your PhD studies. This was not included to patronise or tell you what you already know, but as a reminder that there are parts of our PhD life in our control that when well managed can help us on our PhD journey. This includes getting your foundations right when it comes to self-care, with the knowledge that investing in you means you are more likely to be able to manage in the lower, lonelier moments of your PhD. This means an investment in self-care, ensuring that you are eating well, getting enough sleep and exercising where possible. It is also important to realise that if you do not have access to these, be it due to financial difficulties or due to chronic illness, etc., this is not your fault. It just means that alternative support systems may be even more important for you in order to succeed. Building your mental health toolkit is an investment in you. We also explored that sometimes the biggest barrier we might encounter on our PhD journey is ourselves. The negative self-talk that accompanies the imposter phenomenon the self-imposed guilt we often feel for not working constantly, the letting go of all our self-care in the pursuit of a deadline, and the punishing ourselves for not being as productive as we should have been. Recognising these patterns, calling out our inner voice and questioning if we would say the same things to a friend can be a good start in managing our own thoughts. This may require you to explore resources available to you, including project and time management tools, calibrating your expectations by finding someone to mentor you through the PhD process and taking regular, much-deserved breaks away from research to come back refreshed. I've also explored systemic issues that may affect you as a PhD student as you go through your studies. This is not a damning indictment of one or two universities, but a reflection on academia as a whole. One of the most important takeaways from this book is that mental health support and provision is not simply an individual responsibility, 
but that of the university we are studying for our PhD at. The environment we find ourselves in can have huge impact on whether we can succeed. To assist in this, in the third section of this book, we explored environmental stressors, detailing some of the systemic challenges you might face. I also want to leave you with some final take-home thoughts that I carry with me that stem from my own PhD and mental illness experience that I wish I had known at the times where I was struggling. I hope they will benefit you too. We are not research machines. We have feelings, emotions. We might find we end up crying in our PhD supervisor's office more than once. That doesn't make us unprofessional. It simply makes us human. And it is this human element that brings curiosity and caring for the world around us, the very reason we go into research in the first place. If it was easy, it would already be done. With PhD research, you are standing on the shoulders of giants, trying to discover something new, understand it, then put it out in the world. This is no small feat. It is going to be hard to make new discoveries and piece all that information together. It is part of the process. It will take time, study and luck to find something new, and you may end up discovering something entirely unrelated to your initial studies. The finish line will not be visible for quite some time. You've already proven your capability. It is easy to forget we actually have the skills to succeed during a PhD already from our previous experiences. This is why, to do a PhD in the first place, there is a range of acceptance criteria. You qualified for your PhD position, not through some kind of fluke, you're not an imposter, and you deserve your PhD position. Suffering is not a standard. When we talk about a PhD being difficult, this should refer to the research being challenging, not experiencing bullying behaviour, or being told to fend for yourself, with little to no support. There is no rite of passage for entry into a PhD programme, nor do you have to prove yourself. Research is hard enough without someone trying to make it even more difficult for you. Comparison is the thief of joy. No one person's journey, be it their research career or background, is the same. Thus, it is not valid to compare yourself with those around you. Luck and privilege is the unmentioned success factor. You can try and try to succeed at your research, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you will get the outcome you are looking for. Whilst everyone has the same 24 hours in a day, not everyone has the same luck, project or privilege. Academia is not a meritocracy. You and your well-being has to be the priority. When managing a mental illness and doing a PhD programme, you will likely have to set boundaries to protect your mental health. Otherwise, the culture of overwork may lead to burnout. Do not take your physical or mental health for granted. Nothing is worth the expense of them. Walking away is okay. If you find yourself in a toxic, oppressive working environment that is not your fault, you have every right to look after yourself and walk away, reevaluate your options and try something new. You have not failed. Academia has failed you. There is a whole host of systemic issues within the academy. Whilst not often mentioned, the academy itself is flawed. There are many barriers to success that individuals might face, particularly from historically marginalised groups. These issues are systemic and should not happen, but they do. It is important to remember that if you are struggling, it might be them, not you. Academia needs you. Perhaps one day, if you beat the odds and become a professor, and I truly hope for you that if you want it, you make it, you'll reflect back and realise 
that the power is yours to make a difference from top down. True leadership intersects heavily with compassion, and those of us living with mental illness often have compassion in spades. To improve academia, academia needs more disabled academics in leadership roles. For those of you struggling right now, no mental illness does not define our capability or our potential. We can claim it as a descriptor for ourselves or never tell a soul, it is our choice. But either way, we should celebrate that our experience with mental illness brings a unique perspective that is vital for research and for improving the world around us for the better. There may be days where life is an uphill struggle, where the challenge of the day is not world-leading research, but simply getting out of bed. On others, the finish line may seem so out of sight that it appears impossible to reach. On those days, I ask you to remind yourself that you deserve your PhD position and hang on to the fact that tomorrow always has the potential to be better. On other days, on the rare days where research works, revel in it. Share your journey with others, celebrate the little wins as well as the big ones and try to hold on to that feeling for as long as you can. Finally, if you do find yourself in the dark, lonely place I found myself in during my PhD, I say this to you now. You are worth so much more than your PhD. Your worth is not measured by your academic achievements. You are deserving of help, and there is help out there for when you are ready. One thing I can tell you categorically, you are absolutely not alone. And although you might not be able to see it yet, somewhere in the not-so-distant future, be it within academia or finding your worth elsewhere, there is a version of you that is not just surviving, but thriving.